You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I am Monica Arangolaya. In today's episode, we are delighted to welcome back Dr. Isabel Cristina Jaramillo from Los Andes University in Colombia. We will be talking to her about the latest publication she edited, Gender in Transition, studies about the role of the law in the distribution of resources for implementing the transition in Colombia after the peace agreement. Isabel Cristina Jaramillo is full professor of law at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, where she teaches constitutional law, feminist jurisprudence, and family law. She obtained her law degree with honors from Universidad de los Andes and a doctoral degree in law, SJD, from Harvard Law School. Her work has focused on feminist legal reform in Latin America. Professor Jaramillo has been visiting professor in Saint Paul, Paris, and taught courses at the Free University of Berlin, the University of Geneva, the University of Miami, and Berkeley Law School. Welcome, Isabel. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Monica. It's great to be here. Congratulations on this publication. The objective of this edited collection is to reconstruct and think about what gender has meant during Colombia's transition to peace and reconciliation. Additionally, it seeks to answer what has the transition meant for the building of Colombian feminisms. This is very exciting and timely. For our listeners who are less familiar with Colombia's peace accord and its transitional justice scheme, Colombia's peace agreement was signed in 2016, after over four years of negotiations. It ended a 50-year war with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC, a leftist eh, guerrilla. However, it was severely contested by almost 51% of the population through a plebiscite. The plebiscite made the government renegotiate the agreement, which in its newest version was finally ad adopted, reshuffling Colombia's legal landscape. We are celebrating the fourth year of the peace agreement with FARC. Can you explain briefly where is Colombia now and what has happened in these four years? Yes, Monica. Well, unfortunately, we're not where we hope to be. The impact of the plebiscite uh, was uh, really important in the process of implementation of the agreements. Even if there was a process of uh, adaptation of the final agreement in light of the critiques of most important sectors in society, including religious sectors and the far right. Uh, the agreement, uh, which stayed in force after those adaptations and was approved by Congress, uh, has not been implemented at the speed or with the energy that was expected. Uh, huge amounts of resources were destined initially to the um, uh, materialization of the many measures that were provided in the agreement, including measures uh, on redistribution of land, on the activation of uh, rural economies, the protection of the rights of uh, rural uh, populations, and in particular of rural women uh, and their needs for land and education. But those resources uh, remain un, uh, unused, 
many of them, and others were not appropriated for these uh, tasks. So we have a very, uh, I, was, I was involved very closely in the supervision of the first years of implementation. Uh, the first two years showed uh, a minimal implementation, but I would say that the last two years would even show uh, significant lags in, in um, taking the measures that government was supposed to, to take in accordance with the agreement. You've been working in gender issues for a long time. And um, now is the fourth year uh, of the implementation or the adop adoption of the peace uh, accord in Colombia. So this book is quite timely. How did this, the idea of this edited collection came about? Well, I, uh, as you mentioned, I've been working on gender issues in Colombia for a long time and questioning how, uh, how to think this issue through a feminist lens. Uh, I was critical of Colombian organizations that were uh, placing too much emphasis on sexual violence within the armed conflict, paying little attention to redistributional issues, but mostly paying little attention to the connections of the armed conflict with structural inequalities in Colombian society. So from that very critical position, I engaged uh, a number of conversations with feminist organizations that were taking very seriously issues regarding the armed conflict. And from these conversations, I got to know young activists who were interested in uh, reflecting themselves on their own experience uh, in the armed conflict. And uh, we started meeting to read feminist theory and discuss their experience of conflict and uh, helping victims of the armed conflict through this feminist theory. And uh, that process brought together also some scholars from other universities, feminist scholars in other universities who were experts on issues of uh, armed conflict and gender, uh, such as Carolina Vergel and Maria Carolina Olarte, whom I got to meet, uh, it was a very, very fortunate I got to meet them through this project. And, and so um, I think we, we were trying to uh, create this alliance of uh, academia and organizations to bring theory to bear on the experience of activists, which was very rich, very significant, but created uh, some questions that theory uh, could or should be able to answer. So, so the process was one of uh, creating, creating bridges between academia and organizations to understand better what we were all experiencing about the place of armed conflict in, in feminist uh, mobilization and feminist thinking. One of the starting points of the collection is the question about a transitional moment for Colombia with the peace agreement. Within the very complex uh, Colombian context, what do you understand as this transitional moment? Well, at a point in time, it seemed that this peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla would be the final point of a long-awaited long -awaited transition in Colombia. Uh, and, and just for, for some of the list, the, uh, some in our audience who might not be as familiar with Colombian insistence on transitioning, we've had 
this type of peace agreements since the 1950s with many measures uh, geared towards uh, justice, reparation, and reconciliation. We've started to use this transitional vocabulary in 2005 when government uh, uh, entered agreements with the paramilitary groups operating in the territory uh, and the constitutional court decided that this was an opportunity to start speaking of transition in uh, in, uh, in Colombia. Uh, so this peace agreement with FARC seemed to be a last step uh, as those political groups uh, armed and operating in the territory were finally going to uh, surrender their arms. And we were thinking that we would, that the, the new scenario would be one in which only groups, uh, that delinquents, uh, regular delinquent groups would uh, remain organized and operating in the territory. So this, the hope with the agree peace agreement with FARC was that we would finally end a long process of transition which meant negotiating which each, with each one of the different uh, political groups that were operating uh, in the territory. You mentioned in the introduction of the collection that one of its main contributions is to provide new information about women in Colombia's transition to peace, but, but mainly, and more pointedly, an analysis of the role of gender in the peace accord. How do you understand the role of gender in the peace accord? Well, this agreement with FARC uh, was particularly influenced by uh, feminist organizations, and it was emphatic that this agreement should have a gender approach to issues of transition. This was possible because Colombian feminists have been mobilizing around peace, at least since 1994. But with the peace agreement with FARC, there was a stronger uh, participation. There was international pressure and pressure from the media to include women in the negotiating um, uh, teams, but there was also pressure to create a commission that was in charge of uh, the gender approach to the peace agreement. And so the chapter by Olga Velasquez in the book shows how uh, progressively, women, and in particular, feminist points of view, were introduced in the negotiation of the peace agreement with FARC. This peace agreement, as my chapter shows, not only uh, names gender, uh, the gender approach or gender mainstreaming as a tool that should be used to read the agreement as a whole, but includes a number of measures of quite different measures that tries to make the agreement, it's the agreement itself, an agreement that is uh, sensitive to gender. So uh, not only is the language of the agreement or not only is there an, an attempt to have the language of the agreement be a language that is gender inclusive, but also uh, systematically there is a call for equal participation of women in the institutions that will be created for the implementation of the agreement. And then there are special measures geared towards women in particular, as I mentioned before, women in uh, rural areas or areas which have crops in a more vulnerable situation. So gender is thoroughly in the peace agreement. As a matter of fact, this led, this was one of the stronger criticisms 
of groups, uh, of religious groups and groups from the far right was that the vocabulary of gender was too present and that this was against the neutrality that the agreement should have. This notion about gendering ideology and the backlash that it generated is quite interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it was used uh, against the peace accord? Yes, well, this is not an issue that we we are able to go too far uh, into in this book, but it was actually part of the process. Um, it was during the plebiscite campaigns or in the time allocated by government for citizens to get to know the content of the peace agreement and to make a decision on whether they would support or not the agreement as it as it as it was uh, negotiated in that process for some reason uh, evangelical and protestant groups started to and even some catholic priests started to raise issues of uh, the peace agreement as introducing in Colombian legislation the notion of gender. And in that sense, interestingly, they argued uh, the peace agreement would authorize same-sex marriage, uh, the adoption of children by same-sex couples, would incentivize sexual education that animated individuals to become transgender and uh, would authorize abortion. Although it was clear that the intention of the agreement was to have an impact on the structures of Colombian society far beyond the particulars of the confrontation between government and FARC, as it understood that patriarchy was at the root also of this um, political confrontation, uh, it didn't have any clauses on same-sex marriage, a sexual identity, or a reproductive rights. Um, those were already ingrained in Colombian legislation that could not be uh, changed by an agreement of this type. This agitation through these false messages was crucial to uh, create an ambience of rejection of the agreement as a whole. Now, government and FARC astutely, I would say, didn't surrender gender as a category that should be used uh, to interpret the uh, agreement or that should be used in the implementation and introduced some uh, clauses on the protection of religious freedom and uh, of religious rights. Uh, and it also created an, a, a particular institution that would supervise the implementation of the gender of gender in the agreement given that gender is so central to 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 the peace agreement as you as you've mentioned how is the collection structured how are you thinking gender in in, in this collection the collection structured along i would say uh, two lines one of them is the the almost a chronological line because part of the work is about the peace agreement with FARC. But another part of the work that we include here is a, um, somehow an evaluation or a reflection on the transitional process that preceded the uh, agreements with, uh, with FARC. So as I mentioned before, there was a peace agreement with the paramilitary that created a transitional 
infrastructure, a transitional uh, apparatus, and some of the some of the chapters are dedicated to understanding how that transitional apparatus worked and what were the results for women. And then there's another part that was that is specifically about the peace agreement with FARC. So that's one way in which we're um, in which the book is organized. But the book is also organized along the question of the distributional effects of the reforms as and so some of the um some of the chapters uh show the more uh private economical impact and other chapters uh study more the justice aspects of the peace agreements and the effects while others are looking at political participation so we cover roughly uh, issues of justice and particularly uh, women victims of uh, gender violence in the armed conflict. We cover issues of political participation, both in the negotiation of the agreement and after the negotiation of the peace agreement with FARC and issues of redistrib economical redistribution uh, that should come with the peace agreement and that in many ways has been problematic and we've seen much less than we hope to see. The second part of the book is devoted to case studies. Can can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, yeah, uh, it has, I, I would say, quite interesting uh, studies on, uh, first, how our family law rules uh, have been part of property law all along, but we're not thinking of this intersection when doing land reform, which is at the heart of agreements with FARC, and how the fact that women do not have rights if they're not wives of the men who has the title who, or who is given the title. Then there's, uh, I think, a very interesting chapter on the way in which reparations are using the financial system uh, to bring women into the, the logic of market and finance and uh, are leaving women poorer in the process of giving them reparations for the damage they have endured in, uh, in armed conflict. Then another chapter on the uh, procedural innovations introduced uh, to uh, adjudicate cases uh, involving the armed conflict and how those uh, innovations, which seem to bring some promise to feminists for the um, judicialization of cases of uh, sexual violence against women in the armed conflict, have not fulfilled the promise or those, those innovations have not brought any change in uh, reducing impunity of sexual violence against women in the Colombian armed conflict. Finally, we have two chapters on the case of Pohaja, uh, one of the very few massacres involving FARC. In these chapters, uh, the case is, again, is interesting because this is a case that has been researched and tried even before the peace agreement with FARC. And, and so we have plenty of governmental action uh, involved in the in, involved in justice reparation and uh, non-repetition in this case of Bohaja. 
But what uh, the chapters do is uh, from an ethnographic point of view, try to express the frustration, anxieties, uh, limitations of all these uh, transitional efforts. As you mentioned, these case studies go way before than, than the peace accord. Why do you think it was important to examine gender and resource distribution before the agreement? Well, as I mentioned, Monica, feminists have been engaged, have been negotiating gender with the Colombian state uh, for at least uh, 25 years. So I think that, or we thought it was crucial to see the, the agreement with FARC as a final product of that negotiation. So in, it would be very unfair to think that gender appeared in the peace agreement with FARC only because there was some international pressure or only as the result of the transplant of some foreign institution to this process. It was actually whatever resulted in terms of uh, having gender as a part of the peace agreement with FARC uh, definitely is, result, is a result of the work of feminists in Colombia for, as I mentioned, at least 20 years. And on the other hand, we thought that these tales of gender in the implementation of peace agreements with the paramilitary could serve as cautionary tales of uh, the ways in which our projects could unravel and the unexpected uh, adverse effects of some measures that the literature has been advocating as uh, beneficial for women, so that in this process of implementation, we, we have more time, we have more elements for a reflection that uh, is, uh, one could say, more conscious of the adverse effects that some of these measures have, and tries to avoid them, or at least recognizes that the decisions are made notwithstanding the knowledge that we have that that they they will not uh, produce the effects that we desire. These case studies vary widely in theme and geographically, as you have ma mentioned. Are there any common threads in the findings of those studies? No, I I would say that uh, as I mentioned, what we're trying here to push is to take seriously the role of law in the transitional processes. So one common thread would be this notion of uh, law as uh, relevant in distribution. And in that sense, um, for example, putting forward how doctrinal um, that our interpretations of the legal rules in force create uh, scenarios that not were not necessarily foreseen uh, to begin with. So this would be one of the, uh, is that doctrinal interventions of legislation produce relevant effects in distribution. Another aspect I would say uh, that these papers have in common is it's not only the cultural that is at stake or the or justice as a very abstract notion of being considered an equal part of society, which of course we agree is a quite crucial, 
but it's uh, it's also uh, women's empowerment and women's capacity to control resources within Colombian society. So, uh, and even in situations, so so both how law intervenes in distribution, but also how distribution is a crucial aspect of some of the operations of law that in many cases are um, just not as visible to us as interpreters and as uh, adjudicators uh, of the law. This is perfect now that you mentioned uh, the distributive analysis. That is really the second contribution of the book, to present methodological tools for a gender analysis. Can you explain a little bit what is a distributive analysis of the law? So, as lawyers, we're frequently taught that distributional questions are solved by legislators and that expertise on distribution remains with economists. And so uh, we understand our task as um, not involved in issues of distribution. And that means that we are not, on, on the one hand, that we're not liable for the costs of our decisions. And on the other hand, that we're not able to intervene to make those costs less for the people we care about. So our lawyerly training in general makes us irresponsible both as actors, as agents uh, of transformation, positive transformation or negative transformation when it comes to uh, the costs of, the, uh, of our decisions. So, what we're trying to push here is the notion that uh, choices about rules have consequences, economic consequences, not necessarily or mainly monetary consequences, uh, but negative consequences. And many times those are negative consequences for the groups we care about or that we're, whose rights we're advocating. Uh, and other times there will be costs for other groups, but we 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 should remain uh, um, alert towards the possibility of creating those costs, both both for the groups that we are uh, trying to um, protect or empower, and for other groups in society. So in the in the case of this book, by pushing the distributional line, I think we're both uh, developing a critique of the Colombian state and its institutions and how they have uh, understood gender or implemented gender as part of their institutional arrangement. But we're also furthering an internal critique in feminism about the costs that some of our uh, innovations might bring, both for women and for other groups. This is a, a, a certainly an innovative tool of approaching gender within this context. Is, is, do you think there is a role of human rights for human rights in this type of analysis? The distributional analysis, it takes us its point of departure, human rights analysis. So it is because we're interested in uh, protecting the rights of individuals who have been excluded, marginalized, well, killed, expropriated, etc. So human rights 
is our contemporary vocabulary. So it's a vocabulary that allows us to understand all these harms. And, and so distributional analysis starts from the acknowledgement of these harms and the intention of understanding how these harms are the result of different institutional arrangements. So human rights analysis is at, I would say, at the starting point uh, of identifying harm in contemporary societies and in identifying costs. So definitely uh, we use human rights in, uh, as, a, as a theory of harm in distributional analysis, yes. The third contribution of the book is to create new knowledge about the, the climate transition from a gender lens, in furthering a feminist standpoint that resignifies knowledge production and contests past stories. So here, the who is talking is central to the collection. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about the authors? Who are the authors of this book uh, chapters? Uh, yes, the... Authors in these chapters are all Colombian legal scholars, uh, professors at Colombian universities who are uh, interested in how law uh, creates or transforms the lives of people. This is innovative uh, because most work on violence in Colombia has been the work either of male scholars most of them not lawyers or not legal scholars, but rather sociologists, historians, uh, psychologists even. Um, and most of the work on feminism and gender has been done by feminist organizations and activists in Colombia. So we're, we're entering as a group of legal scholars into a scenario that is populated by men on the side of scholarship uh, and by uh, activists uh, on the side of, of gender analysis. You mentioned that the, this collection is contributing to build Colombian feminism. Can you unpack this idea? Well, we're, as a, as a group, uh, convinced that the, the Colombian experience and thinking about the transition has been long, intense, interesting, and that it uh, would, and that it certainly contributes to the transnational dialogue existing on transitional justice and gender. Uh, that is a conversation, the conversation about transitional um, justice and gender, in which uh, many. English-speaking scholars have participated and in some ways have shaped the concepts that we use to think through um, our own situations, our own local experience. Uh, and it has been this scholarship produced and that I would say it's part of a transnational feminist canon is, is, is rich, it's interesting and has taught us a lot. But what we were convinced that we uh, through this type of exercises are making contributions that are not only relevant locally, but are, are also relevant in that transnational conversation. And that's what we, we believe is somehow a, a Colombian feminist um, contribution to the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Isabel. It's been fantastic to talk to you.
Thank you, Monica. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Alm. This episode was co-produced by Monica Rangolaja, edited by Christy Callawal-Gale and hosted by Monica Rangolaja. Music for this series is by Rosemary Alma. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Duby. Thanks to our production team members, Sandra Fredman, Megan Campbell, Gory Pillai, Natasha Holcroft-Ames, for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.